Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And wow, that uranium episode, that uranium episode sure did well. Uh, That was one of our most listened to episodes, and it only came out last week. So we're going to do more of that. Uh, You know, I've been thinking about this for months and months of bringing on more financial analysts because I love to listen to financial analysts. But, you know, it's there's always just something that comes up. Uh, but I am going to put more of a focus on there because I want to give you guys what you want to hear in terms of content. So that is very exciting. And, you know, I love that interview as well, frankly. Rowan Ratty from Global X ETFs. That was a fascinating interview. So we're going to do more of that. I actually thought of doing a uranium doubleheader, but then I, I was going to do the Cameco conference call just to see what they're saying. But it was way back from the beginning of February. So I thought that's a little old. But we do have something very special and important. And this is more on the cultural side of mining. And this is how to achieve diversity in the mining industry and with emphasis on how to achieve. I'm very big on practicalities and how do we actually do that? And this is a great conversation moderated by senior reporter Carl A. Williams. And he is joined by Catherine Gignac, who is corporate director at Cameco, and Margaret Naudi, vice president of Merit Asset Management. And just a little teaser, for example... The kind of thing that comes up in this conversation is, you know, if you're doing a site visit to a mine site, have PPE, personal protective equipment, for different sizes of people. Because if you're five foot two and you're asked to get into some massive protective suit that doesn't fit you and maybe some helmet that doesn't fit you, well, first of all, as Catherine Gignac points out, first of all, it's not very safe. And second of all, it doesn't really make you feel like you should be on that site, right? So that's what I really liked about this conversation. It really is about, oh, okay, yeah, good point. This isn't just some politics. This is basic. This is the basics, okay? And yes, we know there is a political side to this. And we get into the quotas. Should there be quotas? Should there be quotas? So you have two thought leaders From the Trailblazers panel session at the Global Mining Symposium, they both weigh in on their thoughts on quotas. So, very exciting conversation. They did a great job, and I learned a lot, as I always do, at the Global Mining Symposium. And other than that, you know, zooming out, we've got the 10-year treasury at 1.77%, still rising. Again, with like this virus news that, you know, the scientists come out and they say they expect it in nine to 12 months that our vaccines are going to be out of date? Like, I mean, if that's the case, I expect that to come down. Um, But what if it doesn't? Because that news has come out today. And then we have on the same page on CNBC, 10-year treasury yield, it's 14-month highs, topping 1.77%. So just to imagine a scenario that could be freaky and interesting, What if the world goes into crisis, but again, because of this virus and the vaccines don't work, and all of a sudden, I would imagine a stock market going down, but who knows, right? But what if 
world goes into crisis and the 10-year yield doesn't drop and that it stays high. It always drops, right? Because everybody wants the safety of bonds. But what if that were to happen? So just kind of an interesting scenario to consider. And with that, let's get on with the show. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner, and you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have an interesting report from Roskill, who we often cite on our website, Canada needs to work towards gaining leadership in the EV revolution. And there are some astonishingly low numbers as far as what Canada will be contributing to the global lithium-ion battery market, according to Roskill. And this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode from Mining.com. And the article starts out, Canada, quote, has great potential, end quote, to become a leader in the global lithium-ion battery market, according to new analysis by Roskill. The research firm published the insight following the announcement by Lion Electric. Uh, and Lion Electric is a manufacturer of all-electric trucks and buses. And they announced the construction of a $185 million battery manufacturing plant and innovation center in Quebec. The project is expected to receive a joint $100 million investment from the federal and provincial governments. And it is planned to begin operations in early 2023. We have been discussing this, this idea that the government should actually be getting in and help support these projects. And trust me, I'm not big on government funding to begin with. But in this case, I think it makes total sense. Okay, I think we, I think when we approach this issue, first of all, I think the language that is appropriate, perhaps, is public-private partnerships. Okay, these are, you know, these are ways of fostering what this country needs. Okay, so the federal and provincial government are chipping in, as they did with uh, First Cobalt, who we're coming to next. According to Lion Electric, the factory will produce battery packs and modules made from lithium-ion cells, which should translate into considerable reduction in the cost of its vehicle manufacturing, with a particular impact on the development of heavy-duty electric transportation. Annual production capacity is forecast to be 5 gigawatt hours in battery storage, which means that the company will be able to electrify approximately 14,000 medium and heavy-duty vehicles a year. And we have a quote from the report. Building an EV battery plant in Quebec would be a crucial step in the advancement of the Canadian lithium-ion battery ecosystem, stimulating the cell production in the country and further localizing the supply chain. Across the Canadian lithium-ion battery supply chain, cell and module production has been relatively weak, Based on the announcement production plans by March 2021, Roskill's analysis shows that Canada will account for only 0.03% of global lithium-ion battery cell capacity by 2030. I'm going to repeat that. Based on the announced production plans by March 2021, Roskill's analysis shows that Canada will account for only 0.03% of global lithium-ion battery cell capacity by 2030. 
In the market researcher's view, if projects like Line Electric reproduce across the country, Canada could start gaining leadership in the EV revolution, particularly given its large mineral endowment and production capacity for key battery raw materials, including lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, copper, and graphite. I keep coming back to George Salamis and resource sovereignty. Uh, Canada, in material terms, as far as I'm concerned, is a superpower. And in political terms, it's not. And I think that's why, as a country, Canada just needs to turbocharge, be at the heart of basically ESG-produced metals. And if that means help from the government, so be it. Because we can be ideological all we want on, oh, we need it to be a free market. But the reality is, is China is not playing according to the free market. They're subsidizing their metals. And just like they did with the rare earths, which they subsidized and undercut the entire North American industry. And now here we are 12 years later trying to get a rare earth industry together. So we know what's going to happen. So let's not feel bad about it. It's an investment in the country. Soapbox over, back to the article. Quote from the report. As of today, however, Canada mainly exports these commodities in the form of mineral concentrates to Asia with very little value added to produce lithium ion battery materials. So it's saying we create the materials, but we don't do anything with them. We just ship them out to other people to process and to make something out of. Were Canada to start working towards processing these raw materials, it would be in a privileged position to build a more sustainable powered EV battery supply chain, given the high proportion of clean power delivered to the country's grid. At present, Canada is the world's third largest producer of hydroelectricity, with 67% electricity coming from renewable sources and 82% from non-greenhouse gas emission sources. Finally, quote, with accelerating global demand for lithium-ion batteries, Roscoe believes that Canada has a unique opportunity to develop into an important lithium-ion battery materials and even cell hub in the North American EV supply chain, though there remains significant investment required to achieve this status. So I don't think we have 10 years to debate this, is my final comment on this for today's episode. I think the governments are doing the right thing. Okay, they throw money at this. It's sort of like, here's the money. No excuses as to why this plant isn't being built. You guys have the money. Just go. Turning to our next story. First Cobalt secures five-year cobalt sulfate offtake contract. Now, First Cobalt, if I remember correct, got $5 million from the federal government and $5 million from the provincial government. And here they are a couple of months later, and they are... Doing deals. This is by Magda Gardner, Canadian Mining Journal. As First Cobalt readies for a restart of its Ontario refinery next year, the company has announced a five-year offtake agreement with London-based metals trader Stratton Metals for the sale of cobalt sulfate from the Temescaming Shores Hydrometallurgical Facility. The contract allows First Cobalt to sell up to 100% of the cobalt sulfate generated in a year to Stratton. The exact quantity would be determined by the company before the year start and includes a minimum. The sale price would be based on the market prices at the time of the shipment. Stratton would also be paid a fee on the cobalt sulfate sales made under the agreement. And Trent Mell, 
First Cobalt president and CEO said in a news release, quote, Stratton Metals are among the most knowledgeable cobalt traders in the world with a network of relationships in every major market. The sales arrangement is a key milestone for the company as firming up commercial arrangements, supporting the financing process for the refinery expansion. Mel added that the startup of the refinery is on track for October 2022, but a year and a half away. So you can read more about that at northernminer.com. Moving on, now we have this Donlin project, which is a joint venture between Barrick Gold and Nova Gold. And from what I remember about this project, there's a lot of skepticism, but I don't think Mark Bristow is going to really invest a ton into something that he doesn't think is going to work. So I think we should watch this story. This is by Northern Miners staff. Barrick has released results from the remaining 30% of the 2020 drilling program at the Donlin Gold Project in Alaska. Both the grade and thickness of the intercepts were higher than predicted. The data collected also resulted in a better understanding of the controls on mineralization. Okay, so let will just read a couple of highlights here. 51.2 meters grading 4.6 grams gold per ton, including 7.6 meters at 12.4 grams, and along the same lines. Okay, so there's some gold here. It is considered one of the largest and highest grade undeveloped open pit gold deposits in the world. It contains an estimated probable reserve of 33.8 million ounces of gold, Get this, mine output could average 1.3 million ounces annually. It's received its major permits from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the U.S. Bureau of Land Management. Agreements are in place with the Callista and TKC native communities, providing employment opportunities, scholarships, and preferential contract considerations. Now, 1.3 million ounces annually is pretty huge, lest we forget. Barrick's 10-year plan has been to produce 5 million ounces of gold per year. This is 1.3 million ounces. Okay, now Barrick, I think, fell a little bit below last year because of Porgera and the government issues there. Here, this is in Alaska, pretty safe jurisdiction, 1.3 million ounces. Let's say they get half of that. They'll probably get more in their joint venture with Novagold. They're laughing if they can pull this off. And so very interesting development over there. Continuing on... Speaking of governments getting involved, Ghana terminates Resolute Mining's Bibiani lease. And this is by Bruno Venditti, mining.com. Resolute Mining is seeking legal advice after its mining lease for the Bibiani gold mine in Ghana was terminated and the company was told to seize all activities and operations at the mine site. In a press release, Resolute said that the action on behalf of the Minister of Lands and Natural Resources was unexpected and that the company is seeking clarification from the minister's office. The miner announced in December that it was selling the gold mine to China's Chifeng Jilong Gold Mining for $105 million in cash. Resolute acquired Bibiani in 2004, but placed the mine on care and maintenance shortly afterwards to allow exploration activities to develop the asset into a large-scale operation. So they announced in December that they were selling to a Chinese mining firm for $105 million dollars. Resolute changed course in January 2020, launching a review of the mine to determine whether to keep it or sell the company to, quote, a better place to keep the gold mine running. A 2018 feasibility study estimated a Bibiani restart could produce about 100,000 ounces of gold per year over a 10-year mine life at a total capital cost of around $115 million. So stocks of Resolute fell 25%. Very interesting. You see a geopolitical angle here. 
China buys the mine, Ghana terminates the operation. Maybe they didn't know about it. Interesting, interesting. Final story, El Rosa fetches $23.9 million in three auctions. They are selling diamonds. This is by Valentina Louise Leotod, mining.com. El Rosa announced that it made $23.9 million in three auctions dedicated to celebrating its Jubilee auction number 100. In the three events, special-sized diamonds, which are gems over 10.8 carats, were auctioned. As per Russian legislation, this type of diamond must be sold at international auctions. Jubilee auction number 100 was digital, with an additional option of on-site viewings in Dubai, where three diamonds weighing 242 carats, 190 carats, and 136 carats were tendered. According to Al Rosa, proceeds from this auction totaled $7.7 million, while the digital version generated $5.5 million in revenue. The other two events followed a traditional format, took place in Antwerp, and fetched $10.7 million. And we have a quote from El Rosa Deputy CEO of Jenny Aguriv. Quote, this allowed us to ensure that as many clients as possible would have access to the goods despite the traveling restrictions that are still in place. It is fitting that we are evidencing this interest at this very moment, one year after diamond auctions and diamond trade as a whole were blast frozen. It sure was. I I don't think diamonds had hit such a pessimistic note as about a year ago Um, because they seem like just the most, a year ago, you know, with the world and a pandemic coming and all the shock of that, like a diamond just seemed like the most useless thing in the world and the last thing on people's mind. But so things change. Here we are a year later and they're raking in millions. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on March 30th, gold is trading at $1,683.35 per ounce. That is $44 lower than last week's quote, quite below the $1,700 mark. We will discuss that in a second. Silver also down at $23.94 per ounce. That is $1.20 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,158.90 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week's quote. Palladium is trading at $2,580.60 per ounce. That is $34 lower Then last week's quote, and turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.06 per pound. That is $0.07 lower than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at $1.02 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at $0.88 per pound. Nickel is $0.07 lower at $7.38 per pound. Tin is $0.30 higher at $12.66 per pound. And cobalt is also lower at $23.53 per pound. That is $0.39 lower than last week. And zinc is $0.02 lower at $1.28 per pound. So what do we see? We see precious metals take a hit. Now, 
There seems to be two reasons for that. Quite a big hit today, actually, with gold well below $1,700 at $1,683. People are saying the higher treasury yields and a stronger dollar. So that kind of, I think, explains the precious metals. Industrial metals, again, seem to be just consolidating at elevated prices. So precious metals down, industrial metals hold steady. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Thought Leadership Panel from the Global Mining Symposium from February 24th, 2021. And it is a Trailblazers panel session featuring Catherine Gignac, Corporate Director of Cameco Corporation, and Margot Nodi, who is Vice President of Merit Asset Management. The panel is moderated by Carl A. Williams, Senior Reporter with the Northern Miner. And he gives introductions for both guests. So I will leave it to him. And I will see you on the other side. Yes, we've got a great uh, discussion this morning. We've got two highly accomplished uh, senior executives uh, to chat about this uh, concept of, if you will, diversity of thought, or, or maybe a better title might be diversity of ideas at the board level. So we have Catherine Giniak and Margot Nordi, um, who I think will provide some really interesting uh, insights and perspectives on this idea of how do we encourage this level of diversity, uh, particularly at the senior management board level, in so much as then uh, the boards are actually even more representative of their their organizations and, and the communities and the society in which they serve as well. So just a, a quick sort of uh, overview between them, a combined experience of, of working with 14 boards. So we're in pretty good hands uh, when it comes to the knowledge of the ins and outs and the workings of boards. Catherine Giniak, Catherine's an independent corporate director, um, has over 30 years experience as a, in mining equity research analyst uh, and as a geologist particularly working in capital markets across the mining industry. Catherine has a ICD.D designation and serves as director of Cameco and Ocean Gold at the moment. She's also the chair and director of Women in Mining Canada and is a member of the Institute of, uh, of Corporate Directors, the Canadian Institute of Mining and Metallurgy, and the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, of course. And Catherine actually is a geologist by background. So that, that again, gives an interesting uh, perspective on uh, it's the board level. Also joining us as well is Margot Nordi. Margot is a president of Elvin Capital and co-founder and lead independent director at Abux Technology. She also serves on the boards of Ocino Resources, BTU Metals and Polaris Infrastructure. Margot has 20 years of experience managing natural resources and mining portfolios leading by side firms. She's also been cited as a Brendan Wood Top Gun Platinum Portfolio Manager. And actually, Margot's background is in politics, economics, and uh, business major. So again, it's, uh, there's quite a contrast between both uh, Margot and Catherine's background, but they both bring those uh, unique ideas to, uh, to the board level, which again, we'll, we'll tease out as the conversation uh, progresses. So uh, again, Catherine and uh, Margot, welcome to the uh, discussion today. Privileged to have you here. Sure. Thanks a lot, Carl. Um, what makes for an effective board? Uh, I think for, for any company, it's uh, skills, attitude, and, uh, and of course, a bit of diversity. I think more on the geography side. But as far as skills are concerned, uh, every board benefits from um, the, the background and experience of accountants, lawyers, bankers, 
uh, in the mining or extractive industry, geologists, as you mentioned, my uh, background is in geology, engineers help to uh, give some perspective in terms of operational activities, health and safety, et cetera. So I think th those are added skills, particularly to the, to the industry. Um, attitude, I, I think this is, is very important. Not only, not only do you have the uh, time commitment in order to contribute to the board, but also the motivation. Uh, do you, what, what's your purpose? Do you have something that you want to uh, give back to the industry? And then just a general attitude, I'd have to say an effective board works uh, when everybody listens to each other, they respect each other's opinion. It may be a different opinion that they may be used to, but at least they'll hear them out and, and give it some thought. I think that's very important to be, be considerate of each other. And, uh, and if you don't uh, agree or, or don't understand something, ask questions. That's, uh, that's the best way to participate. But also I'd say for, uh, for the mining industry in particular, a geographic uh, mix is very important. Um, you know, on a, on a global basis, uh, being, uh, having the opportunity uh, for myself to see uh, mine sites and projects around the world, there's a lot of like-mindedness, especially at the executive or, or board level, but there's also a lot of differences, and that's mainly in terms of, of culture. Uh, Oceana Gold, uh, we recently focused on um, a director selection process uh, for someone with New Zealand experience since Waihee and, and McRae's are so impactful for the growth going forward for the company. And as far as Cameco is concerned, they're one of Canada's largest employers of Indigenous people. So it's very important for us and, and actually part of the mandate to have at least one Indigenous person on the board, which we do. I would um, echo everything that Catherine said. The only thing that I would add is that my experience is that the tone for um, all boards is, is really set by the chairman. And having an effective chairman, I think, is key for an effective for an effective board. The best chairs that I've worked with are able to get input from everyone around the table and are open to differing views. In fact, they may even encourage uh, individuals to play devil's advocate. And this has the effect of making sure that the tough questions are asked and that different alternatives are considered. And, and in my experience, this results in much more effect, effective decision making. The other thing that I would note is drawing out um, the differing views can actually help in building consensus behind a decision. And, and, and again, effective board chairs um, are um, uh, play an important role in uniting the board and the organization behind, uh, behind the key decisions. I'd like to maybe come on to, uh, I, I didn't specifically want to focus the discussion just on gender. But I think it's interesting to note that obviously as two very accomplished uh, women executives in an industry that some of the statistics I've just obviously alluded to have, um, uh, have shown that there's a distinct lack of uh, uh, women at the board level. I wonder what it is. And again, maybe, maybe Catherine, I'll start off with yourself again. If what, as a woman you bring to the board, is there a particular, maybe using the, the mindset, maybe from your own experience with the woman working industry, is there a unique set of uh, perspectives that you think that you bring to the board because you are a woman? And, and without being too biased, yes, <laughs> I, would say, I would say, Carl, men and women are different. <laughs> and, um, and, and I would use the phrase soft skills. I think women as in general and, and myself, and, and I know Margot is as well, tend to be very observant, um, very aware of what's happening around them, whether it's body language or, or how uh, people interact with each other. For example, um, how a president would, uh, would interact on a site visit 
with a you know a jack leg driller at, at the face or or a mill worker um, in the mill, and to see how that interaction happens and the body language tells you an awful lot about about how the board is made up in terms of their values and, and the comment that that Margo made about tone at the top. I think that that's that's pretty important. And so I would generally say that that women and and um, ourselves in particular are very observant and aware of what's happening and and in general the other important thing is making decisions so depending on a woman's background you know mother daughter sister whatever you have to make decisions all the time and they're often uh, very quick decisions you often don't have the opportunity particularly in capital markets to have the leisure of taking months and months to come up with an answer. So particularly with, with our backgrounds, I think decision-making and being able to evaluate um, all aspects fairly quickly and be able to come up with a decision is an important skill to have. And I'm not saying men don't have those skills, um, but we're somewhat generalizing. Perfectly well, uh, well said. Thank you very much, Catherine. Uh, Margo? Uh, I would add to Catherine's uh, comments, which, which I think are very insightful, that I think that women have perhaps a more holistic approach with respect to problem solving and a willingness to work across disciplines and across silos. And I think that's particularly important when you think about the extractive industries and the multiple disciplines that are required in order to bring a mine into production. You know, you need expertise in everything from rock mechanics, hydrology, geology and engineering. And, you know, one of the risks of groupthink is that um, is when organizations become too focused or, or um, anchored on particular disciplines. But I think that in many respects, women are, you know, there's a willingness to to see different perspectives, ask questions, and to really gain an understanding across those silos. And that uh, I think that helps uh, very much in advancing uh, in complex projects. Interesting question to lead on to that is, again, are there any maybe examples you can give where there were obstacles or challenges that may have, may have been specific, say, to your gender or a, a gender bias within the mining company that you can maybe pick up some examples that humorous or otherwise, I appreciate that not all of them may be uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, um, uh, insightful or painful, but anything that you say that uh, you've experienced over all those years that um, does point to the fact that um, this industry does distinctly lack a, uh, uh, that diverse gender diversity at the senior management executive and, and even maybe at the site level as well. Sure. Um, just one observation, and that would be, I would say the mining industry, extractive industries are very traditional, tend to do the same things the same ways every year over and over again. And so it, it is important for people to, to put up their hand and, and notice that there's something that could be changed or could be improved on. Um, one of the first things on a site visit, and, and I know it's not just women that go through this, it could be very small men, very large men, um, it's proper fitting PPE. So putting on a pair of coveralls where you know the crotch is down at your knees and, and your gloves don't fit and everything is just hanging off you, that's not safe. And maybe just for visitors, but um, that, that is something that's very basic and, and necessary uh, in order to feel like you belong there. Um, accessible bathrooms. When, when you visit a site quite often, um, you know the tendency is not to have anything to drink because you have no idea when and where you're going to see the next bathroom. And uh, on your travels, whether it's even just the, 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 the bus or truck ride to get to the site or 
being underground for an extended period of time, whatever the case may be. The, uh, one situation uh, that, that we talked a little bit about, Carl, is uh, early, early on in my career, the first time I went to South Africa to go on a site visit, um, you know, it was important for, for the work I was doing. Uh, to be there and uh, not only have a chance to go to the head office, et cetera, but also to get underground was was very important. And the company couldn't guarantee that I would get underground um, because of the superstitions, the workforce that that just wasn't allowed. And uh, they could they could um, react if they knew a woman was going underground. So um, it wasn't until I traveled there and uh, and got to the site that I basically went in a small closet to get dressed, you know, fitted out with all your PPE. Nobody nobody could tell if I was male, female, <laughs> or anything else. And uh, and eventually I was able to get underground, but uh, that was just a a situation that no one else had even thought of or or thought to ask about. Um, so that that was a bit of a challenge. Um, and obstacles because of your gender. It may not because of your gender, but again, it may not just, it may have been just that um, management or supervisors were not aware of what the impact would be. So not being invited to meetings, not being invited to a decision-making meeting uh, when you actually should have been, or perhaps if you were a male, you would have been. Thanks, Catherine. No, I think that's really insightful. And I think again, maybe speaking as a male and maybe as a white male, I, 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 we don't know what we don't know. And I, I, I think sometimes it may be willful ignorance and other times I think it's maybe just genuine ignorance that doesn't excuse it, but I think it's, it's clearly out there. And so thank you very much for those examples. Margot, would you like to, uh, to add anything further to that? The, um, you know, I, I, I would share many of Catherine's experiences. The, certainly in the early days of my career, dealing with PPE issues, specifically um, you know, footwear uh, for underground mine tours um, was um, you know, quite with the benefit of hindsight, quite unsafe. So um, I do think there have been improvements um, in on some of the safety front, but I think the real opportunity going forward is to improve inclusivity, and not just for women, but but for 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 those individuals that are not cut from the rather homogenous cloth uh, of uh, leadership in the industry. I think an interesting, um, uh, we talk now a lot about maybe what some of the challenges and obstacles, but I'd also like maybe to uh, ask uh, both Catherine and Margot what their thoughts are on what practical steps companies can take. Now, I know one of the things I wanted to lead on as well is the idea of quotas, and I know that's an extremely controversial subject, uh, and I know Catherine and Margot have, have strong views on this as well, but I think it's worth noting that um, companies in California this year by law have to have at least um, two or three female members, I believe this quota system was actually introduced back in 2019, uh, rather. Um, of course, it, it, it's very much dependent on the size of the of the board. Um, but that's the law. And if companies don't adhere to this, they do face financial penalties. Uh, interesting to note that both, uh, or rather Norway, Spain and France and many other companies are, are countries. So with that in mind, I would ask uh, maybe uh, Margot yourself first then, well, what do you think are the practical steps companies can take to uh, uh, improve diversity at the board level? Uh, and also, uh, what do you think on quotas? What, what's your thought on, on uh, introducing quota systems? So let me say at the outset, I'm not uh, a huge fan of quotas. I have a strong preference for the carrot approach uh, versus the, the stick in terms of uh, encouraging diversity. And, and, and my strong premise, and this has been borne out in numerous academic studies is that um, a more diverse board it actually translates into better decision making and better shareholder returns. 
So I think, you know, that is the opportunity. Uh, I did want to share an example that I think is very interesting with something that was announced in the last couple of weeks. Um, and again, this is this pertains to a more generalist investment landscape, if, if you will, excuse me, but certainly has, uh, you know, read through for, for the mining and extractive uh, industry sectors. Um, Carlisle Group, which is one of the largest private equity funds in the U.S., they're about a $250 billion fund, has just launched a $4 billion ESG credit fund where they're tying the price of debt directly to the firm's goals of having 30% representation of diverse members on the boards of their companies within a two-year period. So why are they doing this? Carlisle is not being mandated to do this. They're doing this because they are in the business of maximizing investment returns. And they have done forensic research on their portfolio companies and determined that, and this quite quite striking results, they determined that their portfolio companies that had two or more diverse board members had average earnings growth that was 12% higher than those with less diverse boards. So 12% is a pretty meaningful figure in investment management. This, this, is, this is a huge number and, and could be you know, the difference between first and fourth quartile um, performance rankings. And again, I, I, I would reiterate that Carlisle is very much in the business of looking for companies that outperform and, uh, and, and therefore have, have greater shareholder returns. And again, they aren't mandated to do this. They're doing business and it's empirically driven that um, companies with more diverse boards do um, have better decision-making track records, higher earnings growth, and and uh, and better shareholder returns. So I think this is a great initiative. I think we're starting, we're seeing more and more of this, especially with the institutional capital flows into ESG mandates. And the bottom line is that more diversity and better governance translates into better shareholder returns. So that's, I, I, again, that's something I've wanted to highlight because I think it's it's a good practical example uh, and very much um, emphasizes that, that that there's a there's th that it's an opportunity for companies to improve returns Catherine uh, any thoughts on this area sure absolutely and um, I think I think uh, Margot and I are in agreement in terms of targets whether we call that a quota a target or what have you but um, I, I don't believe in just a gender quota. 30%, 40%, 50%, the Capital Modern Markets Modernization Task Force recommendations have, have uh, put out 50% uh, uh, for gender within five years. That also includes people of uh, Indigenous and color. But I, I think I totally agree in terms of diversity. So I think that, first of all, the board, the C-suite, ideally should look at its workforce, look at its geography, look where its assets are, and try to uh, reflect that at the senior level. So uh, I gave you some examples in terms of, of New Zealand and Indigenous, and and I do agree. If if you're if you're working in Burkina Faso, you should be considering someone with African experience and and bring them to your board level. And uh, I think that that's critical. And and also uh, I guess reflecting back to uh, values. So the leaders at the at the top of the organization have to demonstrate where their values are. And, and if they truly believe in fairness, then that should be demonstrated in a fair and equitable and diverse uh, 
uh, team that is helping to lead the company? Your views on exactly what I think is required within the industry. I've read quite a lot over the last couple of weeks or so on diversity and how one does it. I think you both encapsulated exactly, I think, what it what seems to be the prevailing feeling at the moment uh, in terms of improving that uh, that diversity at board, man, at board level as well as executive senior management level. I think I'd also ask you, and I know that we're, we're sort of coming up to the Q&A session, which I'd like to jump to in an hour, but, I, but I'd like to ask you both, for yourself, when you were a uh, at university, what advice would you give to yourself coming into the industry? I'd say your career path is not linear. <laughs> You're going to wind like this. And... And so be prepared for that. So keep as many of your uh, doors open, um, keep your options open in terms of your career path and where you're headed and, and be, be aware of that. Um, I also think it's, it's important to understand the economics of the business. You, you need to understand your role within the organization. Uh, how are you contributing? And, uh, you know, for example, when we get a chance to have elevator pitches again, be prepared. And, and in, in your elevator pitch to whoever you're speaking to, uh, be prepared to, to show how your role fits in with the goals of the organization. And one thing I would say that I, I learned uh, very early on and, and is very difficult to do is uh, to be visible. And so when you're at an early stage in your career, the tendency is, is always to just put your head down and, and get your work done. And you assume that you'll be rewarded and, and you'll move along a career path. That does not necessarily happen. Everyone has their own agendas. And uh, you know, your, your supervisor, for example, if they are the only person that you communicate with, they have their own agenda and they may not necessarily speak up for you on your behalf. So I would say, you know, raise your head and be visible. Yeah, no, I'd agree with, with everything that Catherine said. I'd, I'd, the, the things that I would add would be to um, seek out mentors both male and female, um, that these would be individuals who can help raise your profile, for instance, as, as Catherine um, was suggesting, and can provide feedback on uh, areas for development. And, and on that front, um, also be, be willing to put your hand up and to, to look for opportunities that, uh, that take you out of your comfort zone, particularly as, as it relates to, again, you know, be, there are a lot of subject matter experts in, in the mining sector, um, but growth opportunities to um, the, the lateral assignments or to work it with uh, in different disciplines, uh, I think are very valuable for future leadership opportunities. And then the final, final thing would be to do not be shy about ask questions and, uh, and really focus on, on uh, continued, uh, continual learning. Wonderful. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Jeff. agree more. Lifelong learning is a good recipe for anyone in any industry and increasingly necessary. Gotta always upgrade the skills. And with that, thank you once again for joining me and thank you to Carl, to Catherine Gignac and Margot Naudi for the insight on a very important cultural issue in the mining industry. So with that, thanks again for listening. If you want to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, please do. And until next week, take care.